Well, I invite you to turn there to 1 Corinthians 15. We will be picking up in verse 35. We will go to the end of the chapter. If you've missed some of the other messages, this is the fourth message out of this chapter. The one that Tom did correctly say was the resurrection chapter, although with a longer pause than I would have hoped for in in response to his question. It's got to be on the tip of your your brain. um, It's a resurrection chapter. It's a chapter that from beginning to end focuses on the resurrection as we've seen in these weeks. What the Bible pictures for us is that eternity will be spent not in some nebulous existence in the clouds that is incomprehensible, but in the long term will be spent on a new earth with resurrected bodies where we will live with Christ on this new earth. And it is a marvelous eternity that awaits his people. But this resurrection doctrine, the doctrine that we will be raised from the dead, is not some fringe belief that only shows up in a handful of passages. It runs throughout Scripture. And I'll just give you a sampling of them. Jesus himself in John 6, verses 39 to 40 says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus taught this, that he will raise up his people on what he calls here the last day. He shows up in the book of Acts. Where they say there shall certainly be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the wicked, in that case a resurrection to judgment. Going back to John, in John 11, the man that Jesus was close to passed away. And he went to to see the sisters of this, this man. And as he's talking to them, they talk about the resurrection. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, she misunderstood because Jesus intended to raise him up much sooner than that to bring him back to life. But notice that she had a concept of the resurrection that for her would have been based in the Old Testament. So this isn't even just a New Testament concept, but she, as a faithful Jewish believer, knew that this resurrection was coming. So we jump to the Old Testament and we see it there. Uh, Job, the man who suffered so much in this earthly life, his hope was in a resurrection. Job 19, 25 to 26. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. This last time, in his last days, he had an understanding that he would see God in his own flesh, in his own body, because he would be resurrected. Isaiah speaks to it. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. Jumping back to the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the dead in Christ will rise first. And, and this even is just a sampling. It, it runs throughout Scripture, this resurrection hope. It is not a fringe doctrine. And that is good. Because the breakdown of our bodies from injury and illness and eventual death is not a fringe experience, is it? It's present. We're all experiencing it in some ways in this deterioration of our bodies and we will, unless the Lord returns first, all experience death. Two common questions, though, that come up when we sort of press into the resurrection is, how could this be? How can God do this? How can he actually raise people from the dead that have been dead for hundreds, thousands of years? 
So there's a how question, and there's often a what question. What will our bodies be like, these resurrected bodies? Well, I want you to notice those are the same two questions that the Corinthians ask Paul and that he answers in this passage. Eventually, we'll read all the way to verse 58, but notice just verse, 50, or just verse 35 for now. So if you have it open, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? These are the two questions. Two questions about our resurrected bodies. How is this going to happen, and what will those bodies be like? And both those questions are natural questions. How can God take bodies that, not to be too gross, have decomposed, their nutrients have leached out into the soil, been brought up in plants, maybe their ashes were scattered across the ocean, perhaps they died a tragic death overseas, how can those bodies possibly be put back together and resurrected? That's a how question. It's a question about God's power. But there's also what questions. What will these bodies, what kind of bodies will they be? What will these bodies be like? Will a child who dies still be a child? Will a, an older person who passes away, will they be that age forever? Some of you are thinking, I hope not, right? What will that be like? Will we recognize each other? Will we be in perfect health? Will we be able to hurt ourselves? And if not, what will that be like? These are the questions that, that um, my own younger kids often ask of, of when we talk about this. They say, okay, so we can't get hurt. So does that mean I could just like jump off of a cliff head first? and I won't be hurt? Does that mean I could just take a hammer and hit my finger and it, and it won't hurt? Uh, it's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around. Those are the types of real questions we sometimes come to. Now, the passage isn't going to get into the weeds and the details of that, but it does sketch out for us some big ideas of what these resurrected bodies will be like. I want you to notice, though, before we get to the rest of the text, Paul's initial response is somewhat cutting. Verse 36, you fool. We might not have been anticipating that response. We might have been anticipating just a patient walking through. What that response tells us is this, he knows this wasn't maybe a good-natured question. It was sort of a gotcha question. Like, we already know these people were denying the resurrection, so it's more of a question like, how could this be? God, God can't possibly do this. What would those bodies be like, Paul? Come on. It's a, it's a gotcha type question. And so he provides a rebuke, but then he answers them anyways. And he'll answer these with, with three analogies and then four contrasts and then three implications. Okay, So some analogies that we don't want to press too hard. They're just analogies, but give us some ideas. And then some contrasts that give us more details and then some implications. Let's look through these analogies first. And first, actually, let's, let's read. Let's read the rest of it. But I want you to read with these in mind. With these two questions in mind. How can this be? What will those bodies be like? And then for these analogies and contrasts that run through here. 
I'll read verse 35 again, and then we'll go all the way to verse 58. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men, and another of flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for, stars differs, uh, for, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So these two questions, how and what, lead way then to these three analogies, contrasting our present bodies and our future bodies. We're not to press into these analogies too much. There's a big point they're making, that, that there's just like there's a difference between these various things, so there's a difference between the body you'll have now and the body you will have then. And the first analogy explains that we will be as different as a plant is from a seed. As different as a plant is from a seed. Seed that is sown in the ground uh, appears lifeless and small. You think of the one he mentioned specifically, a seed of wheat that's planted in the ground, it's brown, it's small, it appears dead and yet pulls in nutrients and water, and it, and it grows, and it comes out of the soil, and it grows tall and green until it, until it gets close to the harvest again. It bears little resemblance to the seed from which it came. 
There's a transformation, in other words, that, that takes place. I think he's answering both the how and the what question here. The how he's addressing by saying, God shows this type of power constantly in nature. We're constantly seeing things planted and grow. And we're just so accustomed to it, we don't realize how amazing that is. Could God not do the same with our bodies? Could, could he not, if he can cause this little seed to become a plant, if he has built that into his world, can't he bring together a resurrected body for you? It's not outside of his power. The what question is also addressed. The plant is different than the seed, but it's still the same kind, right? The wheat doesn't become barley or a banana, right? It's still wheat. And likewise, you won't become like an angel or something different. You will be a human. In fact, you will be more human than you've ever been because the effect of the curse will be rolled back. But there will be a difference. The difference will be as stark as a plant from a seed, as different as a human is from other creatures. I think that's the point he's making in verse 39, where he says, all flesh is not the same flesh. Meaning, you have a body now, you'll have a body then, but they're different. And in the contrast, he will really press into those differences. He says, there's a flesh of men, a flesh of beasts, a flesh of birds and of fish. He's not saying you will become like one of those. He's saying, we're already accustomed to variety in God's creation. Should it surprise us that there's a difference between the body you have now and the one you'll have then? There's difference in there, but God is powerful enough to do that. And then the third analogy, so the difference between our future body and our present body is as different as the earth is from the sun, the moon, and the stars. There's a glory in each of these, but they're distinct. And in each of these, God's power is displayed through what he has made. You think of these various heavenly bodies. And by that, we just mean they're, they're in space. And some reflect the sun. Some give out light. They're glorious, but different than each other. Just this week, there were some new images of uh, Jupiter that were, that were shown, some very high-resolution images of Jupiter. It's stunning enough from a distance, but when you zoom in, it is beautiful. If I didn't tell you what this was, you would think it was like modern art, right? Maybe it should be in a museum. This is Jupiter. It's a planet that God has made. And, and this verse tells us that they are, there's a glory to them. It shows God's creativity and his power. But there's a different glory, even with these different, different things that he's made. The sun, for example. This is, these are images that are about a year old, but some high-resolution images of the sun. And if we zoom in on one particular part, you see these bands going across the sun that are superheated, uh, superheated elements. And each of these bands is about 300 miles wide. And it just casually goes across the surface of the sun and gives you a sunburn, right? <laughs> but God has made all of these things. He's addressing the how question. If God can make this, is he somehow going to be stumped by figuring out how to give you a resurrected body? Oh, his power is not limited in that way. And as different as these things are from each other, he also is making the point that your body then will be different than it is now. It'll still be you, but it'll be different. And now he gets into these contrasts. 
And these contrasts then give us more detail about how our body then will be different than the body we have now. So we'll look at this now. After three analogies, we'll look at four contrasts between our future and our present bodies. Picking up in verse 42, if you close your Bibles, I encourage you to open them back up because it's helpful to see this as we walk through. It says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. So walking through each of these, it doesn't maybe press into all the details that you might want to know, but it gives you some big picture ideas of what that will be like. Your body will be imperishable rather than perishable. Imperishable rather than perishable. In another New Testament book, the book of 2 Corinthians, he compares your body now that he says here is perishable. He compares it to like a tent. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We know that if this earthly tent, the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan longing to be clothed with our dwelling from on high. He's using an analogy of a tent compared to a a home. And he says, your body now is like a tent. Camping is great. Our family is hoping to camp this week if we can avoid the smoke, depending on kind of where the winds are blowing. It's great for a few days. It would not be great for a year, two years, right? Some of you are thinking, not even a day, right? Because it's, there's a hardship that comes with that. We, we know it's temporary. And he says that's what your body is like now. It is like a tent. It is temporary. Because what we see here, it is perishable. It is perishable. Your body comes with an expiration date. It is starting to fall apart as you age. And you've experienced that. And some of these other points, we'll get into that even more. Uh, this week, I poured a glass of milk and as I poured it, I heard the dreaded glub, glub, glub. And if you've done that, you know the milk that's supposed to be smooth, it comes out chunky. It has perished, right? <laughs> and, and I smelled it, and it confirmed. It hadn't yet reached the expiration date, but it had gone bad. And it's saying the same thing. Our bodies are perishing. And yet one day they will be imperishable. The resurrected body, that's one of the key differences. It will not be perishing. It will not be falling apart. It will not be deteriorating. It will be imperishable. Next, he says, it will be of glory rather than dishonor. Glory rather than dishonor. Our present bodies are affected by the fall in countless ways. They have marks of a broken world all over them in their deterioration and sickness and injury, but also in the way that we use our very bodies themselves to sin against others with our words and with our hands, there's dishonor. There's dishonor in our present experience, but it says we will be raised in glory. That's why sometimes this is talked about as a glorified body. Not just a resurrected body, but a glorified body. Because this mark of dishonor, because of the effect of sin on us, will be replaced with God's glory, reflecting his goodness as we were designed to do it. Same language is used in 
Philippians chapter 3, remember I said this runs throughout Scripture. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Notice the same language. It says, For our citizenship is in heaven, an earthly citizenship, but our main one is in heaven for believers, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state. The body that we have now is in a humble state. But he will transform it into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. There will be a transformation from dishonor to glory and a glory that reflects his glory. A glory that in some way is foreshadowed as we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 15 in the resurrected body of Christ will somehow be displayed in us as well. So glory rather than dishonor. Third, power rather than weakness. Power rather than weakness. Even the strongest among us is weak in so many ways. And it only increases with age, doesn't it? I mean, we can, we can build strength, we can hold that off, but at some point, even the strongest will start to become weak. But it's not just physical. The physical is most easy to see, but we certainly see weakness in what we might call the, the inner man, in the challenges that we all face in different ways with worry and anxiety and, and depression and self-harm and suicidal thoughts and various things that people might feel in different ways and experience in different ways that are, that are inner struggles. So this weakness is not just, oh, you can't bench press as much as you used to. It's in the inner life. The, the way we experience weakness will be replaced with strength. Physically, too, the weakness that we experience from disease and injury will be no more. And in all the ways that we're characterized by weakness now will be characterized by power then. Now, it doesn't spell out what kind of power this is. I think some of you might be hoping that you'll be like a superhero. There'll be no more bad guys to fight. So I don't know what your superhero powers would be used for, right? I don't think that's what we're to picture. I don't think we're to picture like superheroes. But it's that this weakness that we know, our susceptibility to injury, to disease, to deterioration, struggles in the inner life as well as the outer life, that will be no more. It will be replaced with strength. What that means is when you do experience weakness now, your body starts to give out, you struggle in the inner life, that's a chance to remember that that weakness will not go on forever and that one day God will replace that with strength. And it will come from him. It's not an intrinsic thing to ourselves where we're glorying in ourselves. But he will roll back the effects of the fall to where weakness will be replaced with strength. And then last, the fourth contrast, is of a body that will be spiritual rather than natural. This one is perhaps the most challenging to understand because we use that word spiritual in a different way than it's being used here. We, when we talk about something that is spiritual, often refer to to something that's like not material. We think of it as a contrast to between something that is like material that we can touch, something that's physical, to something that is intangible. That's not how it's being used here. Rather, it's, it's being talked about in contrast to a natural body, like the body that Adam had and that we have that is suitable to this life being replaced with a body that is like Jesus' resurrected body that is suitable for eternal life on a new earth. Look at how it's described here. 
This natural body, it says in verse 45, was the body that Adam has. So, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. It's the same root there. This idea of a living soul is the same idea of this natural body. The last Adam, that is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. It goes on to say the natural needed to come first, but it will be replaced by a spiritual body. We, we are earthy from the earth, just as Adam was made from the very dust of the earth. That's why he makes this statement here, verse 47, the first man is from the earth, earthy. It's not just talking about farmers that we think of, ah, oh, they're people of the earth. It's like, no, it's all of us. We are earthy. We're made for this life, this earth. But we need to be prepared for this eternal life on a new earth with a new body. Verse 50, that's why it says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We will dwell on a new earth. It's the description in the book of Revelation, but also briefly glimpsed in a passage like this in 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, looking as in looking ahead to this new earth in which righteousness dwells. And friends, your body is not suitable for that. I, I would not want to live throughout all eternity in this body that is breaking down. Probably wouldn't want to either. But God will give us resurrected bodies that are appropriate for that, that are suitable for that. Wayne Grudem explains this well. I'll read a little bit longer quote. Part of it, the end, will be on the screen, but not this beginning part. Wayne Grudem is a, is a theologian, and he has some great words on this. It says, The fact that our new bodies will be imperishable means that they will not wear out or grow old or ever be subject to any kind of sickness or disease. They will be completely healthy and strong forever. Moreover, since the gradual process of aging is part of the process by which our, new body, or by which our bodies are now subject to corruption, it is appropriate to think that our resurrection bodies will have no sign of aging, but will have the characteristics of youthful but mature manhood or womanhood forever. And then he goes on, and this is the part I want to show on the screen. This is our resurrection bodies will show the fulfillment of God's perfect wisdom in creating us as human beings, who are the pinnacle of his creation and the appropriate bearers of his likeness and image. In these resurrection bodies, we'll clearly see humanity as God intended it to be. Friends, you will not be less human, you will be more human. You, you'll be the human that God intended from the very beginning before it was wrecked by sin that cascaded out to every one of us that has lived and we experience in so many ways that will be replaced with a resurrected body that is imperishable, that is, uh, is glorified rather than full of dishonor, that is powerful rather than weak, not to our own praise and glory but to his. Three analogies that sort of get at this idea of continuity but difference in God's power and then four contrasts to show what this body will be like and then it'll end with three implications and so in our kind of longer conclusion here in a sense I want to want to hit on these three implications this is true if what we can expect is not this weak body that we're experiencing now but an imperishable body that is suitable for the life to come how should that affect us now 
Well, we can know that we will be changed. We can know that we will be changed. And, and the point here that he makes is that even those that are alive when Jesus comes will be changed. Look at verse 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. He calls this a mystery, not because it's you know, some hidden thing to be sought out, but because it was previously unknown and now revealed. And what was unknown is, well, what's going to happen to these people that are alive when Jesus returns? Either in the rapture, which I think is what it's talking about. Some maybe view this as the second coming of Christ. I think the rapture is probably more what's in mind. What about those people that are alive then? Well, he says they will also be changed. Those that have dead, those that have already died will be raised from the dead and they will be changed. Those that are alive when he returns will be changed as well. We will all be changed and we can anticipate that. We can look ahead to that. But the next two I think we can really press into because they affect our lives today. Death will be defeated. Death will be defeated is the other implication of this. Verse 53 again. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. And he goes on at the end of verse 44 to say, or verse 54 to say, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death will be no more. Death will be swallowed up. What a great phrase. Not just that it's done for, it's swallowed up in victory. That the victory that Jesus has over death will be applied to us. So that this thing that we all appropriately fear in some way, and we all appropriately look ahead to, and we know it's coming, will be no more. The sting of it will be taken away. He links this to the work of Christ. Notice what it says in verse 56. It says, The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the reason death is so bad is because it is a consequence of sin. And apart from Christ, what would await us at that point is judgment. But Jesus took that judgment upon himself. He took that penalty of death upon himself and he paid it. And he rose from the dead, showing payment made in full, so that those who trust in him no longer have to fear death. There's a, a sting still there. We'll still experience it now, unless we're alive when Jesus comes, but we won't forever. I want to read you a little quote from an old gospel booklet, probably more than 100 years old, that points to this. It says, There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He's not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, and bringing tears to eyes that have never wept. His arguments none are able to refute. Nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name is death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday every one of you will be his sermon. Death is inescapable. Kind of. <laughs> 
right? It's inescapable, and then unless we're alive when Jesus comes, we will face it. And yet what this passage tells us is that it will one day be completely done for. And that our resurrected bodies will have no more fear of death. Death will be done for. Death will be a thing of the past. We can look ahead to that. That's an implication of this. That death, although we may experience now, is not final. It's not forever for the believer. Therefore, the last implication, and really what I think this whole chapter moves towards, the the conclusion in verse 58, Therefore, he says, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord, or in other words, therefore, persevere. Immovable and steadfast, meaning not pushed around by the very things that you're experiencing in this body that you won't then. When you experience weakness, when you experience disease, death around you, your own future death one day, we don't need to be shaken by that because we know that Jesus has conquered that. And we know that what awaits us is a future that's far better than now. So we can press on through hardship and difficulty now. We can remain steadfast and immovable. We can be always abounding in the work of the Lord, as he describes here, knowing that our toil is not in vain. That even if it's overlooked now or it seems futile now, serving Christ now is worth it because what awaits us is a resurrected body with him that is imperishable, glorified, honors him, and not susceptible to the weakness that we have now. Let's pray.